0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro is expected to respond today to a call by Hawaii's congressional delegation and Governor David Ige to suspend operations at the Navy's Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility. The Navy has long used concerns about national security to limit access to the site and information about the condition of the tanks. The Navy Secretary met with military dependents at a town hall meeting yesterday.
1: I deeply apologize to each and every one of you. And to the people of Hawaii, that this incident may have been destructive your lives in any way and again I reaffirm my commitment as your Secretary of the Navy speaking on behalf of the Secretary of the Department of Defense as well that we are bringing to bear all the resources of our Department of our Navy to fix this problem in doing so it's extremely important for us to be transparent. To be transparent with each and every one of you individually, the best that we can. To communicate with you often through social media, through direct means, through whatever it takes for you to receive the information that you need. We also need to be transparent Hawaii, Hawaii, the mayor, the governor, the members of the Congress, members of the local legislature, who care deeply about the people of Hawaii, and also care deeply about each and every one of you in the armed services. So I pledge to do that, and we already have begun that process in many different ways. I would like to thank each and every one of you again for your fortitude and your resilience. Moments like these are extremely challenging physically, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. And I attest to you that, having just come from the Family Support Center, that, again, we are doing everything possible make all possible resources of the department available to you. My goal is to try to fix this problem. It begins with you having the confidence that the water is safe to drink, to cook with, to bathe with, to use in your own homes. And there are many steps that are being taken, since this problem first came to my notice, that we discussed here today in detail in a very transparent way with you and we will then bring bring to bear all the resources of our Department of the Navy to try to also fix the more long-term institutional problems that may reside in Red Hill throughout the distribution system so that we can correct this problem once and for all so again I thank you I, myself, spent 22 and a half years in the Navy. I, myself, had four children. At a time when the Department of Defense often didn't care as much as they did about the conditions of family housing. My own kids, yes, experienced having to live in houses with wet paint and other challenges. For me, this is personal very personal. Just before I came here, I stopped by Halsey Terrace. And I spoke to a young Air Force couple with two children. I stopped my car and I asked them, what was your experience starting on Sunday morning? They explained to me what they went through. We're going to try to fix that. We're going to try to take care of them physically, mentally, spiritually, working together. I'm confident that our team can do this. I've met this morning with our entire staff, not just in the Navy, but in the Army, with representation in the Air Force, and representation from folks in Hawaii as well, that we've been discussing with, to get to the root cause of this problem. That is my commitment to you.
0: That was Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro at a a two-and-a-half-hour town hall meeting yesterday where he met with military families, veterans, civilians, and Department of Defense contractors. He is to meet with uh, the media this afternoon. It was immediately following that uh, meeting yesterday that the statement from the delegation was released. At a news conference earlier in the day, Hawaii Representative Ed Case had stinging criticism of the Navy and the Hawaii Health Department for early missteps.
2: Somehow uh, we have to get to the bottom of not only what happened and why, but um, how to prevent it and how to deal with uh, longer term uh, concerns. Number two, um, in that connection, uh, one of the critical failings um, to date has been a lack of coordination among the Navy, the Department of Health, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, and others to muster the resources and information and collective expertise and resources to be able to figure out what happened, why, and how. And this is primarily, from my view, viewpoint, a, a problem with the Navy. Uh, the Navy has not been forthcoming, uh, immediately forthcoming with test results uh, and with other information requested by the state of Hawaii um, and by the EPA. And that is a critical failing um, that we cannot accept anymore. Communicated this directly to Admiral Paparo. We have communicated that um, to the higher levels of, of the Navy at this point. That the idea that this is your problem exclusively and you get uh, to to review the possibilities and to and to figure out what to do about it and to implement on your own without including everybody else, anybody else, is not acceptable. And so, on a very very clear observation, we need a far different construct for how the testing is performed, what kind of testing is performed, and immediate transparency and distribution of results. It's an interest in what these results are. And only if we act collectively can we get to the bottom of this um, as soon as possible. Um, and I expect um, to communicate that uh, further and to take action along those lines um, as much as I can. And I believe the delegation as well uh, to make that happen. Uh, that definitely um, has to uh, happen immediately. Uh, Once we take care of the immediate priorities, which is our ohana um, and what happened and why, and and to try to address this issue, um, to certainly go back to the bigger picture questions about Red Hill fuel tank. Again, I don't know as I sit here. I don't have a clear indication as I sit here but whether and to what extent the leaks at Red Hill over the last uh, couple of months, including uh, just a few weeks ago, um, do have a causal connection. Again, working assumption is, hey, if you have a leak at Red Hill and people get sick uh, 10 days after that or less, there is a connection. But we haven't demonstrated that yet. So we need to get through that and figure that out. But there is a broader problem with Red Hill, as we all know at this point. A problem really, as the delegation spoke uh, just the other day in our joint statement of two days ago, we called it um, an organizational crisis issue. Uh, that the Navy has run Red Hill fuel tanks and its distribution system, um, in an atmosphere that simply um, has increasingly not inspired uh, public confidence, um, has made us all feel that it's risk calculation. And we all know that Red Hill is, in fact, critical to our national security. There is no question about that. But if the calculation of preserving a national security asset presents unacceptable risk to us, to our drinking water, to our to our lives. That's not a risk uh, that I or anybody else um, is willing or should be asked uh, to accept. And so the question is, can we, in fact, take Red Hill to a zero risk tolerance profile under which we can feel comfortable with any kind of an operation uh, there um, and maintain our national security and That question has to be uh, reviewed anew and answered. And if the answer is that uh, they cannot uh, eliminate risk, then Red Hill should not uh, continue. Um, We're obviously going down the road on several um, avenues along those lines, uh, whether it be secondary containment Uh, whether it be integrity of the pipelines. Uh, I and the delegation have asked for the funding for all of this, and and actually not just asked, but mandated the increased standard testing, the increased improvements at Red Hill. We did that even before this incident, and we're still obviously continuing that right now. Uh, But um, it also takes uh, the Department of Defense to substantially ramp up its prioritization of Red Hill and addressing legitimate concerns with its operation. Thus far, the Department of Defense has not sufficiently prioritized Red Hill, in my view. I refer to actually including it in its budgetary requests, actually fighting for it inside the president's budget, inside the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, these are the things that have to happen. Where are we're, we're well-positioned as a delegation to require these items uh, with two of us on the Armed Services Committee and two of us on the Appropriations Committee. But as we have all said directly to the Secretary of the Navy and to our senior military leadership, it is not acceptable for you to expect us to do this as a congressional delegation when you're not going to do it up front uh, as a Department of Defense. So either do that or don't expect us uh, to support uh, you at this point.
0: What do you say to the people who might have gone along with the double-line tanks, but now, after seeing what's happened with the Navy's residential area and the Navy's own families, that we need to drain those tanks and move them?
2: Well, I think, first of all, what we know so far is that in this particular situation, the tanks are not the issue. There's, no, there's no, nobody saying that there was any causal connection to the tanks themselves. If there was a connection, it had to do with the pipelines that move fuel to and from um, those tanks. Um, what I'm saying is we have to focus on the immediate crisis, which is uh, help the families and, and stabilize the immediate situation. And then we do have to ask those questions. I mean, uh, secondary containment, um, um, if and as we continue, Red Hill in any way, shape or form, has to be part of that solution. I, can, I cannot envision any solution. For Red Hill under which we would not provide for secondary containment, but clearly um, that has to be on the table. My observation is that the Navy has uh, definitely been deficient in terms of its basic crisis management here. Um, I think, they, I think they, they obviously were caught flat-footed when, when the complaints first came from their communities. They have not reacted um, as fast, as comprehensively, as involved in the community as they should have. I think they're doing better now. Uh, so I, I do want to recognize that they are taking this seriously, that they they have tried to adjust. They're really having to pursue really uh, two things at the same time. Number one is crisis management and, and helping their families. And number two, finding out what exactly happened and why and, and how and, and to develop a plan. Because they're the ones that are responsible for this system. The Army has done a tremendous job of crisis management. Um, as any of you who have been to Aliyamanu can, can attest. I mean, they've got their stuff together. They're, but they are dependent on the Navy uh, for, for this solution. And so certainly one observation um, uh, that I come away with is, is any, any silos uh, in the services uh, as to, hey, the Navy's going to do this and, you know, the Army's not going to get involved in that, those silos have to fall away immediately. And in fact, um, I have observed in the last couple of days that that has happened. Uh, We have, for example, the Navy welcoming uh, the Army into the Navy housing. I was down at Halsey Terrace, and I had uh, there the the Navy operating um, um, uh, water distribution. I had uh, the Army operating some potable water supplies, and I had the Marines operating a a mobile uh, laundry and shower facility uh, for the residents. That's what we need here. Everybody has to pony up and pitch in.
0: That was Representative Ed Case. You know, in a surprising uh, revelation, Navy Rear Admiral Blake Converse told the military families yesterday that it has identified the source of the contamination, though it has not released anything of any detail to the greater general public.
3: We are confident that we have found the source of the contamination, and it is petroleum chemicals that were initiated from the Red River. They were introduced into the potter water system and distributed, and that's the source of the contaminants that many of our residents have identified. The well's been isolated since Sunday. Our priorities for the crisis action team are, number one, to take care of you, the public health, the welfare of both the military residents and the affected houses, as well as the citizens of the state of New Our second priority is to clean up and restore the potable water system and restore your confidence that it will remain clean as we move forward. And I'll discuss that in a little bit. And finally, number three, our priority is to diagnose and correct the introduction of the petroleum products. the We have some pretty good indications of how that happened and we're working with the Department of Health and other entities to validate those and we'll provide more details on that as we work with the engineering on that. What I can tell you right now is uh, from a public health perspective, to take care of the residents who are affected, we've been putting folks into hotels at very rapid pace. We have over 700 residents now in hotels through a combination of PLA and contracts and there's more available and we are eager to support contact the see go online and subscribe, or go to either Task Force Ohana and AMR Reservation if you live there, or go to the Aloha Center if you want to do that in person, and we'll take care of it. We're aggressively working also for those people that don't want to move out of their homes, but have been significantly you know, inconvenienced by this lack of potable water and the lack of ability to do the basic things that you need to do to take care of your family. We're looking at opportunities for financial support, something like for DM if you stay at home, and not exactly that terminology, for those folks that want to stay at home that don't have clean potable water. Um, we, are, we should have resolution on that within the, this day, perhaps as soon as the next couple hours, if not by tomorrow. And we'll provide you that as soon as we have that. We'll first post it, and then we'll put out a press release, and we'll come back and talk to you
0: and that was Navy Rear Admiral Blake Converse. You know, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green last week urged the governor to declare a public health emergency. And also last week, the delegation pressed for Ige to ask President Biden to declare a public health emergency. Uh, Green wants the tanks to be drained and said Par Hawaii has the capacity to take some of the fuel, which the company confirmed. The governor's office declined to comment. Here's Lieutenant uh, Governor Josh Green talking about his proposal.
4: So the proposal that my team and I, offered just to maybe take some of the pressure off of everyone, is to begin the process of a partnership to get this oil above ground. We know that Par Hawaii has worked diligently in the state of Hawaii for a long time. They actually were phenomenal with us. I don't know if people remember, but they were the ones that provided the fuel for our flight when we went over for the medical mission to Samoa to vaccinate that country and they have worked with the Navy before. In 2017 and 2018, they were able to demonstrate that they can move fuel over to some of the military vessels. So this is just one among many plans. But I think that the people that are in harm's way right now would appreciate some additional certainty that 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 fuel is not hovering over the water table. It's completely unacceptable that that there's ever fuel in the water. uh, And That which affects our children is even more impactful for all of us as parents or aunties and uncles. It's just not something we can accept. So this has to be remedied immediately. Uh, Needless to say, the Navy is going to do whatever is necessary to scrub that well and to bring in fresh water uh, for as long as necessary to the civilians and the military families that are there. Uh, But that's not the long-term solution. It it begs the question, how long can we continue to deal with uh, what was a phenomenal project. You know, Red Hill is an engineering phenomenon dating back to World War II, but those tankers, of which there are 20, and they each can hold 12.5 million gallons of oil, it's, uh, it's old. And there is uncertainty there. They know that they have to address it, and there are some long-term plans to address it, but we have a short-term crisis. So I'm trying to provide some additional options for the governor, as I tend to do and the director of health is aware as is our adjutant general and everyone needs to be on the same page so i think that bringing more hands to a solution is important but the families all around that area and really it's you know it's many thousands of our people in in hawaii on oahu in this case that depend on clean water and this is a this is a threat so it'll be interesting to see what the secretary of the navy and our congressional delegation comes up with in the next few days but it's not going to go away as a problem, and we're going to need a lot of advanced engineering expertise. I'll be meeting with some leadership from our own Department of Health, our water folks again, and everyone needs to know that we have secure water that is clean. That is not the case at the moment, and that's why, as you said, I do think it's an emergency. In advanced meetings with the Navy, that's when this idea came up, and I immediately shared it with them because in real time, I was in contact with the leadership at PAR Hawaii, who do have the capacity to take at least a third of that fuel out of Red Hill. Now it is strategic and it's a question, obviously, for the military leadership of what they're prepared to do. I know that they don't like to be reliant on anyone else, but in partnerships, that's what we do in Hawaii. We work with one another, and this it is a civilian health problem also. So. The you know the pattern of oil movement is very uh, easy to do directly from a lot of the par facilities to go down into Pearl Harbor. It's a um, it's a seamless process, and over time, if if necessary, they could actually hold all of the oil over the course of say 12 to 18 months. They could kind of beef up their capacity. But I don't want to get ahead of us. I just want us to have clean water. Uh, the immediate the immediate need is to get clean water to all of our children in that region and all the families in that region. The long-term play is probably to get this oil above ground. I think common sense would dictate that we've had leaks before. When I was a state senator and the health chairperson, I went down there and there was a leak then, and we've asked them to to fix this. But it is a very old and gigantic uh, project. And that means there's uncertainty as to how to repair this and how to reinforce these 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 tankers are bigger than football fields, each of them, just so you know. They're that big. So reinforcing them with steel on the inside is going to cost um, billions of dollars and be slow. And people can't wait that long. We will not be able to wait that long uh, if our water is in peril. So that's why I'm leaning in a little bit and why I'm sure that some of these solutions will ultimately mean clean water for our people. This is about the relationship and the reputation um, of our state and our relationship with the Navy, which we value—I mean, we value it to a great extreme—but health comes first. And so I know that they have to fix this problem. Nothing short of a, of a full reassurance and clean water is going to make people satisfied. That's obvious. And am I am I raising the alarm a little bit? Yeah, of course. Look, I'm I'm a physician that deals a lot of times with children, and I've been very worried about the impacts of contaminants over the years and how that affects development, that's a really serious question for parents and that's why you can't wait. Uh, We've seen some oil challenges across the country and, you know, it it wreaks havoc with people's health and psychology. So they have to fix this now. It may mean um, some significant engineering repair right away, uh, but I would expect that they're going to bring significant resources to bear immediately. I mean, a lot of resources engineering repairs because you can't really pause too long without water right directly in that area and then the long term the water table impacts of the oil above it are still uncertain so we need the best engineers in the world to be on this and that's what I expect
0: and lieutenant governor's office says a second company Island Energy has uh, offered to step up offered to help Um, As we mentioned earlier, Navy Secretary del Toro is to meet with the media this afternoon. And after numerous requests, we're told that Governor David Ige is being made available tomorrow before a planned trip to the Western Governors Conference. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is expected to be acting governor in his absence.
5: Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, helping to improve kidney health through virtual community health and education programs. Open to the public. Learn more about programs and services at kidneyhi.org.
0: Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queens Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org.
0: With the conversation, you know, the delay in confirming petroleum-contaminated water has exposed a need for a local test site. That is the subject of today's reality check. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us from Civil Beat to talk more about our vulnerability. Good morning, Chad.
6: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So yeah, I mean we've seen this for other things, you know, with COVID, with dengue from way back when, and uh, yeah, this we we need to have a better, uh, better lab here that can detect uh, these contaminants in the water.
6: Right, so Christina Jedra's story today and by the way she'll be at that 1:30 press conference with the Navy Secretary who happens to be in town. Tomorrow's the Pearl Harbor uh, 80th anniversary of course. You know, even though we've known for many years now the concerns about the Red Hill fuel operations, the aquifer and so forth. We have we just don't have a lab that has the capability to test those samples for petroleum products here locally in fact we had to send them to california and of course we heard last week how the department of health reported that some of those samples were damaged uh in transit uh, problems with the bubble wrap um and that's concerning why should it take so long folks like donna mercado kim a state senator who whose district is right in that area the greater red hill area so that you know that's just absurd that we we can't have immediate answers regarding uh, the quality of the samples. Uh, But the reality is, at least right now, it does not exist, and the Navy thus far has said it isn't cost-effective, although they are open to looking at possibly having uh, capabilities down the road.
0: Well, you know, I did uh, uh, hear the military say that uh, they did go down to this one site where they think there's been uh, some issue, and uh, they had an independent party, take the samples. And then they gave some samples to DOH and some samples to the military. And they said, "Okay, you go send them to your labs and then we'll see what the what turns out. But it does take time.
6: It it does. The Department of Health says, look, there's really only a few laboratories uh, on the mainland that can search for particles containing diesel and oil and gas. And, And of course, there's just the transportation problem getting back and forth. But, you know, Oh, and will it really be affordable if Hawaii were to have something like that? But Glenn Wakai, he's another state senator, and he's reported in Christina's story today saying, well, you think that's expensive, uh, building a lab here to test for this stuff? How about a class action lawsuit from all the people that have been impacted there at the uh, the military facilities? He said it's it's just ridiculous. Uh, another uh, representative um, in the area saying, you know, maybe the legislature will have to consider appropriating money for some sort of lab facility here in the islands to test for exactly this sort of situation.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, there, there is that uh, issue of, of uh, just the delay, you know, because of our geography. Uh, and the equipment is pretty expensive, mm-hmm.
6: It is. It also has to do with the type of testing. And without getting into too much detail, it's, it has to be very specific. You're talking about particles per billion. There is a laboratory at the University of Hawaii that the Department of Health has been working with, but it, it just doesn't have the capability to to go down to that level of testing. And as you mentioned, we still don't quite know where the, where the, uh, the, the leaks are coming from, although the, the Navy, as you indicated, thinks it has found a a way to do this. By the way, we just heard from Governor Ige, who you mentioned is going to be talking with you folks tomorrow and other media. He did say on the spotlight program today that uh, there's only so much the state can do in terms of whether it can actually shut down the facility. It is a naval facility that is the federal government, even though it is a state's drinking water that we're concerned about. So I don't know how much uh, the state can do. Uh, Of course, you had Josh Green on the lieutenant governor saying, let's empty the tanks.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody's just looking long and hard at uh, what's the solution going forward, you know, once they finally tell us <laughs> what the source of the contamination is exactly and how they're going to clean it up.
6: Yeah, we're all sort of on pins and needles of what's going to come out of that press conference today with uh, Secretary uh, Carlos del Toro. Um, and, of course, you'll be reporting it, we'll be reporting it, and, and hopefully we'll have an update, particularly for all those families suffering from headaches and, and uh Sore stomachs and rashes and sores and all sorts of problems, stomach aches.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, our uh, our uh, thoughts are with all those families. But thanks so much, Chad. Yes. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking with Sybil uh, Beat's uh, Chad Blair. Uh, for more on that story, uh, Christina Jedra's story, go to civilbeat.org. Tomorrow is December seventh, uh, the eightieth anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And veterans have been arriving to take part in the ceremony. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us to talk about what's being planned. Good morning.
7: Morning, Catherine. Yes. Uh tomorrow marks eighty years since the Japan uh attacked Pearl Harbor and that launched the U.S. involvement in World War II. And about 151 veterans uh are are in the islands right now. They arrived last Friday. Uh, most of them, uh, about sixty-three, including uh, roughly around thirty Pearl Harbor survivors, uh, are going to be attending this year's event, uh, which is invite only uh, at Kilo Pier, which is on the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam side of things. But there are going to be allowed uh, some visitors in the visitor uh, center, which where this ceremony usually would have taken place. Now it's important to note that last year there was nothing at all no veterans arrived it was a completely virtual affair Uh, but this year they're loosening up some restrictions obviously having spacing and everything else and invite only for these veterans their caretakers and vips such as uh secretary of the navy uh i got to speak with uh the best defense foundation who is bringing about 63 of these veterans here and also um with a historian with uh, Navy Region Hawaii about the significance of what this 80 years means. And they call this like a milestone event. This is like your uh, 70th, your 80th, your or your 75th and 85th. and But this would be around the time where most of these veterans and most of these survivors will be coming. Obviously, these survivors will be uh, coming year after year after year, but not as many of them. And so this year is being seen as possibly the most... Uh, maybe the last time these veterans and these survivors will be able to make it out. But anyway, got to speak with uh, Michael Malone, who is with the Best Defense Foundation, and he said that uh, COVID couldn't have happened at a worse time for these survivors and uh, veterans.
2: This is
1: incredibly important for these veterans. They're on their final stages of their life, and they want to make this happen. They want to go. This is driving them motivating them. Every day we were talking to them for the past several months and they're just so excited to to go and be a part of this. This is such a monumental commemoration. This was the event that launched us into the Second World War and reshaped our entire world as we know it today. And all of their individual lives changed at that moment. They were either there or this was what got them into the war.
7: And Malone has said that, you know, in these talks with them in the coming months, uh, there have been a couple of these uh, survivors and veterans who have been doing Mm push-ups in their late (laughs) stage of life. But these guys are back in 1941 and during the war were – young. Uh, They were 19, 20 years old, and now it's 80 years later, and so now they're in their 90s and uh, maybe hundreds.
0: And there were so many that were so disappointed because they were hoping to come last year, but because of COVID and and their risk, yeah, the the they didn't. So yeah, it'd be nice to see them get together tomorrow.
7: Exactly, and like I said, about 151 of these veterans, and uh, including Pearl Harbor survivors, will be attending. Uh, in no way is that a record. And I spoke to Chip Newman, who is the historian of Navy Region Hawaii, and this is this is kind of a compare and contrast of the last big milestone event
4: for the 75th anniversary. We had well over 300 veterans, but. I think that's just a reflection of five years having passed. Typically, if I were to do an average number for the last five years since the 75th, we're averaging about 70 veterans that are attending. Because of their advanced age, every single day, obviously, is something that we're grateful for, that they're still with us at any given time. But considering that the average is about 70 veterans at a typical ceremony, the fact that we have 150 is is a pretty good show
7: and the Parks uh, Service is still collecting testimonials from these veterans. I, if you can recall, there was a big effort, over the, especially over the years, to collect these testimonials from these survivors and from these veterans of their accounts of what happened on December 7th. And Newman says they're still doing that. And even if you uh, – it goes beyond uh, World War II veterans. If you have a family member who's like in the Korean War or Vietnam War or even Desert Storm, uh, it's important to get these uh testimonials in and record what happened and then you could send that to uh, museums or the National Park Service and they would be able to use that in the future Uh, and like I said many of these uh, veterans came last Friday Uh, there was a chartered flight that landed Uh, one of those veterans is a private first class from the Marine Corps uh, Kenneth Wells and uh, was asked he was asked you know what does this mean to you how are you feeling and this is what he had to say
8: Well, it's it's an emotional time, and you know that it's been worth every effort that the young men put into it, you know, in the Army, Air Force, Marines, and all that. But uh, I I think we just got here, and I think if you interviewed me two days later, I'd have a different answer for you. But right now, I'm glad to be here and glad to celebrate it.
0: And we're happy that they're here. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
7: And tomorrow's <laughs> events will be live-streamed starting at 7.40 a.m., uh, pearlharperevents.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow. To read his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, providing full-service wealth management on Oahu, Maui, and throughout California. Learn more at thericepartnership.com.
0: Whether you listen for a few minutes a day or a few hours, whether you tune in for breaking news or curated music, when you listen to HPR, you count on us to be a part of your day. Our end-of-year fun drive is coming up. Help us continue bringing you the quality content you rely on. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org and become a first-time member for $10 a month. Or, if you've given before, consider an additional gift. And thanks.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management.
0: This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You know, we'll be getting a visit from a celestial body this month. Comet Leonard will be visible in the skies soon. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share how you can see it. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
8: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey,
9: Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn, can be seen in the southern and western skies till they set shortly before midnight. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, but conditions will remain perfect for stargazing.
8: And I understand this week we have a preview of this comet that's going to be visiting. Indeed.
9: This week begins a month of cometary wonder, as Comet Leonard graces us with its celestial presence. The comet, which is on a journey from the outer planets, will be visible in the early morning in the northeast this week. After that, your next best time to catch it will be from December 17th onward, where it will be present in the evening skies near the planet Venus. (laughs) And will this be visible
8: from the city too, or do you sort of need a, a light, uh, an area with less light?
9: Yeah, unfortunately it won't be visible from the city as it's a little too faint to be seen from anywhere with substantial light pollution. Mm-hmm. So your best bet is to get out of the city and to somewhere nice and dark. And tell us a little bit more about the comet itself, Chris. Well, Comet Leonard seems to have originated from the Oort cloud and was discovered just this year by the Mount Lemmon Infrared Telescope in Arizona as it crossed the orbit of Jupiter. And it's now barreling towards the sun where it will whip around and head back out into the outer solar system. And what do you think it'll
8: look like? Kind of describe what we can expect to
9: see. Well, it won't be as bright as comet neo which we saw in 2020, so it's best to temper our expectations. Comets don't appear to move very much from night to night, so don't expect to see a brilliant object whooshing across the sky, leaving a trail of stardust and rainbows in its wake. But nonetheless, it will be a magnificent sight
8: for stargazers. And then in terms of if we miss it, what's the uh, wraparound time?
9: <laughs> well, it has an orbital period of around 80,000 years. Yeah. so uh, <laughs> better get it now, is um, what you're saying. <laughs> exactly.
8: As with many other things in the universe, you have to catch it while you can. It's Christopher Phillips, another fun stargazer, and uh, appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week,
5: and we keep stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the new Honouliuli Middle School in East Kapolei, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design.
0: Year after year, proponents of a sugar tax push for passage of legislation that they believe will make for a healthier Hawaii. Will they be successful in 2022? Diabetes, obesity, tooth decay, and heart disease are the reasons why health advocates keep up their campaign. They aim to lower those rates and are coming out early to get support for passage of a bill. For a tax on sugary drinks. HPR's Lillian Song sat down with Amanda Fernandez of the Hawaii Public Health Institute and Dr. Lynn Fujimoto of the Hawaii Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Fernandez explains how the proposed fee works. The purpose of this fee
10: is not just to curb sugary drink consumption, which is its primary purpose. And in doing so, it's very effective. To give you a number, in Berkeley, three years after passage of a sugary drink tax there, They have reduced sugary drink consumption by over 50% and increased water consumption by 29%. And we have similar projections for Hawaii in decreasing diabetes by 11% if we were to pass this policy. And the second purpose of the policy would be to reinvest that revenue that was raised by a sugary drink fee back into the communities, the same communities that are negatively impacted by sugary drink consumption that are disproportionately experiencing these types of diseases like diabetes. And so that's what is most important about about this fee when it comes to the actual revenue that's raised. We need to do it right, and we need to make sure that it's going back to the communities. And this can raise revenue for things like nutrition programs from low-income residents like double-up food bucks, school cooking and gardening programs pre-K expansion, college readiness programs, safe active spaces and physical education programs, oral health services or other services and programs to prevent childhood obesity and chronic disease. There are already so many community groups that are of and for the communities that are negatively impacted by sugary drinks that know the solutions that their communities need and this gives them the tools to make those solutions
11: a reality.
12: Dr. Fujimoto, how did you get on board with this issue?
11: Currently, I am the president of the Hawaii Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. In dentistry, we do support the sweetened beverage taxation because we see so many children, and especially in Hawaii, that have rampant decay and obesity. As a matter of fact, next week, I am in the operating room working on a three-year-old that has almost every tooth in her mouth with decay. And so, um, Hawaii, we have the highest rate of decay in the nation. And so, you know, we're very passionate about the sugary drink tax.
12: Did you say a three-year-old is going into the operating room and you're going to be working on
11: all her teeth? Just about all her teeth. And because of the extent of her decay and you know, they're at three years old, they're not able to fully cooperate, that we routinely go to the operating room and we treat these children under general anesthesia.
12: And determining that the cause of her tooth decay really is because of what she's consuming?
11: A lot of it is the lifestyle they're consuming. Um, A lot of it is the sugar in their diet, the high sugar. Sometimes it is from nursing bottle or nursing But in most instances, it's from the diet. Hmm.
12: And Amanda, what would you say to opponents who have said that this tax really targets small business and people without disposable income, especially during this time of COVID? I've read some people say that these taxes are regressive. It only affects low middle income people more than upper median people.
10: So first, on the question of businesses, this has been done in a number of other jurisdictions. There's no evidence that the tax increases led to a drop in store revenues or even job losses. And on the regressivity, the most progressive way to prevent a regressive fee or a regressive tax is to make sure that the revenue is going back into the communities that are negatively impacted. And when it comes to support, we see 81 percent overall of Hawaii registered voters in lower-income households that support this fee. Mm.
12: And where did that percent number come from?
10: A 2020 poll conducted by Ward Research.
12: Mm.
10: It's 81% of Hawaii-registered voters overall support a fee, and that support is higher among lower-income households.
12: Okay. I guess there's something here, too, though. Uh, Human nature. It may just be that some folk would rather stick to what makes them feel good rather than what is good for them. Dr. Fujimoto, how, how, how would you address this?
11: You know, there was an article that just came out in our American Dental Association news brief about how they're linking children that have been introduced to sugary drinks younger than six months of age were more than 50% likely to drink more juice later in childhood and 60% more likely to consume sodas. And so if parents waited till after their first year of age to introduce these sugary drinks, there's a less likely that children would request sugar drinks as they grew up. And a lot of times when these children started drinking these sugary drinks at an early age, they refused to drink water later because they feel like the water has no taste. And so then they choose the sugary drinks over water. So, you know, there is a very, very significant correlation between giving children, young children, sugary drinks. And so if we can, you know, increase them not to get the sugary drinks at a young age, it would benefit all these children.
10: Now, just to add on, you know, in regards to human nature and making the convenient choice, what this would enable communities to do is to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And that's exactly what we want to see happen. And do we anticipate that 10 years down the line, we're going to have 0% sugar, sweetened beverage consumption in Hawaii? No, but we do anticipate that there will be a significant decrease in consumption and that when people do drink sugary drinks, when you do decide to purchase a soda, you know, at a convenience store, then you know that money from your soda going straight in the communities and it's going to help children.
12: Okay. So knowing that sugary drinks are the number one source of added sugar in American diets, this new fee would improve health by disincentivizing these types of beverages while at the same time raising money that will go back into communities to improve health outcomes. Dr. Fujimoto, how do you see forward momentum going as this bill waits to be heard by lawmakers next session?
11: You know, we can only hope that the legislature would be able to thoroughly review this bill and, you know, see the outcome benefits for all the Hawaii keiki, we definitely need to address the enormous amount of decay that is going on with Hawaii's children. So, you know, there definitely needs to be some oral health education and awareness, and we hope this would help with all that.
10: And you, Amanda? This has been adopted as an official priority of the Statewide Obesity Prevention Task Force. We work with a number of organizations and community advocates, and this was chosen as one of their top three priorities to work on for this year. The legislature has a big job, and there, there's always, there are always advocates and community groups coming to them and trying to get grants and aid, or uh, trying to get money and budgets to fund different community-based initiatives. This is an innovative way to do that. This is the solution and the way forward. So it is not asking for existing money. It is a way to raise revenue and to curb consumption all at once. There was a study that projected that this fee would prevent 12,000 cases of childhood obesity, 11% decrease in diabetes, saving $59.3 million in health care costs, in addition to raising about $60 million that could go back into communities. There is no downside to this. And we know that a lot of legislators see that, and we hope that this is the year we can make it happen.
0: That was Amanda Fernandez at Hawaii Public Health Institute and Dr. Lynn Fujimoto of the Hawaii Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Uh, That sugary drink bill is slated to be on lawmakers' agenda in the upcoming legislative session. We'll see if the bill gets a hearing. that is it for today. We will continue to follow the latest with our water crisis. We'll have the uh, results of that news conference with the uh, uh, Navy Secretary uh, on uh, all things considered later today. Are you affected by the water situation? Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back? Uh, All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.